0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. In sixth grade, I auditioned for a a part in the middle school musical, and the role that I really wanted was one of the lead roles. It had a big solo that I really wanted to sing, but I didn't get that part. It went instead to my friend. And I was upset about this. I thought that was the role for me. I wanted that part, and the director, she pulled me aside. She began to explain to me, you know, Brett, the part that you have is an important part. You're, you're the, the quarterback, the football star. You're the popular kid. That's an important role. I said, you're just typecasting. <laughs> I'm an actor. I can play any role. In the end, it was okay because that part, that character that I'd wanted, that character falls in love with another character that was played by my sister. <laughs> yeah, so it's good that that didn't work out. Now, whether your experience is literally a play like mine was, or or something else, we all know that feeling, what it means to say, I didn't get the part I wanted. I'm not in the role that I think I should be in. I'm not in the role. I'm not playing the part that I want to play, and I'm not sure I want the part that I did get. Our gospel passage today is a simple story of jealousy on the one hand, meekness on the other, and the joyful freedom that comes when we desire nothing except that Jesus be glorified in our lives. The joyful freedom that comes when we desire nothing except that Jesus be glorified in us. Some of the most basic questions of human existence are these. What's my place? Where do I belong? Do I fit in here? Am I needed here? Am I wanted here? How do I know that I matter? How do I prove my worth? And into that uncertainty and into that insecurity, envy and jealousy so easily slip in and begin to wreak havoc. I didn't get the part I thought I should get. I didn't get the role I wanted at work, in relationships, in life. I wish I had that life over there. I wish I had that status. I wish I had more recognition. I wish I had those gifts and talents. I wish I had that level of esteem. I wish people talked about me the way they talk about that person over there. We can mix in a heaping dose of guilt and shame also, and we see somebody doing really good things, and we think, what's wrong with me? I should probably be doing that over there. So what do we do when we're wrestling with these questions? How do we fight against the spirit of envy? Well, let's turn to the gospel story today to find out. It's John chapter 3. If you're in your sanctuary Bible, it's page 888. Let's turn there now starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So this is early on in the story of Jesus. After this is he had gone to Jerusalem and began performing signs and miracles. People are starting to put their belief in him. And Nicodemus comes to him in the night and says, where do you you come from? And and who are you to do these works? And Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is where they're just coming from. After this, Now Jesus and his disciples go into the Judean countryside. There he remained with them and was baptizing. Now Jesus and his disciples in this ministry time, it's not baptism proper as we think of it. It's a baptism more like what John the Baptist was also doing. Preaching, calling people to repentance, a change of life, reawakening their hearts to God. Christian baptism, what we experience in those waters over there, to receive the gifts of salvation, that must come after Jesus has won those gifts in the cross in his resurrection through his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. That hadn't happened yet at this point in the story. But this baptism, like John's baptism, is, is mimicking or, or mirroring the purification rituals that the Jews would have been used to. So again, it's a purifying, it's a a rededicating of their lives to God. And so Jesus is doing this ministry. John, verse 23, was also baptizing in the same place at Eneon, which means springs, near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming to be baptized. And it notes that John had not yet been put in prison. So earlier, John had been baptizing by the Jordan River. That's where Jesus came. The Holy Spirit Descended on Jesus, John said, this is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That has already happened, okay? This is in a different location, just somewhere in the countryside near the city of Jerusalem, not the Jordan River, where there are springs. Verse 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Normally in the Gospels when we see the phrase the Jews, It is shorthand, an abbreviation for the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who consistently opposed Jesus, his message, and his ministry. But John Chrysostom, 5th century early church father, he looks at that and he says that singular is important, a Jew. And he says, it's just a dude, in the words of John Chrysostom. Just some guy (laughs) from Jerusalem or from Judea not one of the Jewish leaders here to scope out and spy on Jesus and what he's doing, but actually just a normal man. And likely, Chrysostom says, a man who had just come from hearing the preaching of Jesus and being baptized. And this man bumps into the disciples of John and they start a discussion, or more likely an argument. And again, John Chrysostom, he conjectures. He says, I think the argument about purification is John's disciples saying, well, Jesus is great, but but our rabbi, his purification is better. That's what he was sent to do. You can go listen to that other rabbi, but our rabbi's purification is better. And the jealousy is now apparent as we turn to verse 26. So they, John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you Across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, this is referring to the earlier episode of Jesus' baptism and John saying, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That guy, Jesus, look, he's baptizing. That's our job. He's doing it too, and now all are going to him. They see their popularity and their importance flowing away from them like the tide and going to Jesus, and they are jealous. They are jealous. We think of that story in Numbers 11, where God says to Moses, the burden of leadership is too great upon you alone. I'm going to give a share of the Spirit to the 70 elders as well, and they're going to help you. And so call the elders out to the tent of meeting. So Moses calls them out. The Spirit descends, and all those elders start prophesying. But two of the elders... Didn't get the memo. They didn't make it to the meeting. So they're still in the camp, but they start prophesying anyway. And Joshua, the apprentice of Moses, sees them prophesying. And he thinks, well, now everybody's prophesying, even people in the camp. He goes to Moses and he says, tell them to stop prophesying. And Moses says to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people were prophets, And the Spirit imparted to each and every one. Would that that were the case. Side note here, uh, for us who live in the age of the church, that actually has now happened. The Spirit that we are given, each one is given. You are all prophets with your own portion of the Spirit. But Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? We would want everybody to be prophesying. And I think in the case here, in this story today with John's disciples, I'm not so sure that that's entirely for John's sake that they're jealous, right? Their rabbi was the cool rabbi. As his popularity soared and was at its zenith, their status and their reputation as, hey, we're we're the disciples of John, also rose. And now that everyone is leaving John and going to Jesus, John's disciples are feeling it. It's their jealousy. It's the sting of their reputation and their esteem and their honor floating away, fleeting away to Jesus. Because now Jesus is clearly surpassing the ministry of John. All are going to him. Every Holy Week on Palm Sunday, we have a memorized recitation of the passion, the, the suffering, and the death of Jesus. And several years back, it was my honor to do Matthew's passion, to memorize it and to recite it on Palm Sunday. And as I was doing the work of memorizing, I noticed something that I'd never seen before. When, Paul, when Pilate is trying to release Jesus and, and get him off the hook, Matthew adds this detail it says, For he, Pilate, for he knew that it was out of envy that the Jewish leaders had delivered Jesus up to be crucified. One reason, jealousy, it was their envy. And that stark and simple truth, that is the entire reason why this whole block of leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus. It was because they were jealous of him it sank in so deeply, I began to see in all of the scriptures so many other stories. I said, this is everywhere. Envy seems to be at the back of almost all the stories. I thought about it, going back even to the fall of Satan. You know, many will say, well, the original sin, the sin of Satan, was pride. Certainly pride was part of it, but I actually think envy must have preceded pride. Satan wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to be the king of heaven. It was his pride that made him think he could accomplish that. And soon after, Adam and Eve, this is not the part that we want to play. We want that fruit and what that fruit will give to us. And out of envy for what they did not have, they reached forth, they took the fruit. First story out of the Garden of Eden is Cain and Abel. Cain, murdering his brother Abel for one reason. He was jealous of him. Abraham's wife Sarah, jealous of the servant Hagar when she gives birth to Ishmael. Eventually Sarah gives birth to Isaac. They both grow up now. Ishmael is jealous of Isaac. Jacob and Esau are born to Isaac and Jacob envies what Esau has. He deceives his father to get it and when he gets it now, Esau envies Jacob enough to kill him. Jacob goes and he marries two sisters, Leah and Rachel, and their envy lasts a lifetime. Joseph, one of the key stories of jealousy, his brothers almost kill him. They do get rid of him and sell him to slavery and lie to their father that he was killed by wild beasts for one reason. They were jealous of him. And folks, that's just the first book of the Bible. And Stuart told me after the first service, I can't go on and do all the others. (laughs) There's more. It's not just what we see in the stories of the Scripture. We look in our own lives, and who of us is free from the grip of jealousy and envy? Who of us can say, yeah, I, I am perfectly content with the part I've been given to play? Several years ago, I found myself in an intense and what felt like intractable struggle with jealousy over one of our young and -and up-and-coming leaders. I'll call him W. Chester. (laughs) That's too obvious. I'll say, (laughs) Will C. I talked about this with Will I said, hey, can I tell the story? He said, go for it. Tell the story. So, Will, if he ever preached a good sermon, which was like every time that guy gets up and preach, I would walk away feeling threatened and wrestling through envy. Or I'd see him leading well. I'd see his robust gifts of pastoral leadership, and I would be jealous. I would see his esteem rising in the leadership of our church and among our people, and I would respond feeling threatened, insecure, and fighting jealousy. And it was torturous. I didn't want to respond that way, but I couldn't not. I would get sucked into this rabbit hole of jealousy. Even though he was also my friend. Even though I did love him. And even though he works for Jesus, and I work for Jesus, there's not supposed to be any competition. I knew this. I said, Lord, I do want him to be a great pastor. I, I want him to be a great preacher. I just want to be a little better than him. And It was not just the the torture of, this is not who I want to be, it's not right, but it also just took so much energy and time because I would go down the rabbit hole, and then I would have to sit and go through cycles of truth, the, the cycle of truths that I have to remind myself in order to get upright again and be able to function. It's like, well, that's just a waste of time. It's a lot of energy. And the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, That's exactly what envy does. It rots the bones. It steals our joy. It knocks us off track. And the things that God wants us to be doing in freedom and with joy, we can't do it. We're hindered by this jealousy and this envy that burdens us and entangles us. John's disciples couldn't see Jesus for who he was even though that was the whole point of their master's ministry was to point to Jesus and they missed it because of jealousy and of course the Jewish leaders missed their own longed for and long awaited Messiah he was right in front of them in person face to face he was right there all their hopes and they couldn't see it They couldn't access that joy because they couldn't handle what it meant for them and the loss that they felt and the diminishing that they felt. They couldn't handle it, and they missed out on the kingdom of heaven. So that's jealousy. It's envy. It's the great thief of so many things, not the least of which is our joy. what do we do? What does John the Baptist teach us? Let's read now his response. Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride, that is the bridegroom, which is an old-fashioned word we don't use, but simply means the groom. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, stands and hears his voice and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I don't have the bride. I'm the best man. It's my joy to see my friend on his big day. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete." And the last words of John, the last words we get from him, are these. He must increase. I must decrease. That's the way of it. That is what I've been given from heaven. The antidote to jealousy and to envy, is to accept the part you've been given to play, and to play it well, but making the ultimate goal of your life to bring glory to Jesus. Look again at verse 27 and 28. So he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness, I said I'm not the Messiah, I've been sent ahead of him accept whatever comes from heaven for your life. What your life is, accept also what it is not. Later in John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not you can do some things or you can do some small things, You can do nothing apart from me. And John's words here in chapter 3 are a deeper, more specific application of that truth, that apart from Jesus we can do nothing. Here it's apart from the part I give you to play, you can do nothing. Nothing of true value, at least. Again, the book of Proverbs, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So accept the part you've been given but then play it well. I will even say, play it with greatness. For the call to accept your part is not the call to mediocrity. Understand this, people of God. We're not celebrating mediocrity. This is not to demotivate us. This is not the call to play your part with a surly, sulky mediocrity. Believe it or not, Jesus wants you to be great. And if you're confused, wait wait a minute, you're just great, great, the greatest, how does this all fit together? Jesus said, if you want to be great, then you must become the servant of all. So understand what he's saying. He wants you to be great. I have a path towards greatness. It does involve becoming the servant. So two things to keep in mind. Jesus wants you to be great, but your definition of greatness, it's going to be altered. It's going to be different from what you think it is. Altered according to the way God looks at things, according to his measurement. So be, be prepared for that. You will be great, but in the way God calls it great. Second thing to keep in mind is there is a difference between wanting to be great and The need to be the greatest. And all the difference comes from those three little letters, E-S-T. All the difference comes. Because the desire to be great is what Jesus invites you to, but it is wickedness that tempts us to that need for greatness. In fact, I'll even put it so starkly that the difference between desiring to be great in the eyes of the Lord and needing to be the greatest in the room, the difference between those two is the difference between heaven and hell. And if you think I'm being a little bit eccentric in that phrasing, the great saints of heaven are those who dared great things for God according to his definition of greatness, whereas Satan was he who, yes, needed to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and it is the difference between heaven and hell. But accept the part you've been given to play. Play it well. John the Baptist was a great prophet. Last week, Will told us that he was the goat, the greatest of all time. Will was wrong when he said that. He was the greatest up to that time, and his whole role was to make way for the greatest one. That's kind of important, Jesus. It's okay, Will is still a young preacher. We are working on a few things. John knew that he was not the Messiah, but he said, I want to be the best not-Messiah that I can be. And so he spent his life... He served. He accepted the sacrifice that were according to his call. He embraced all of that. He was not demotivated. He was motivated by saying, I'm going to be the best not-Messiah that I can be. I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. Your part, my part, anybody's part, it can only ever be a supporting role. John understood. It's like One of the greatest feats of human engineering is those huge towers, those launch towers that are strong enough that they're able to hold up a whole rocket ship and be able to hold it in place so that it's straight and ready for launch. I mean, the tower itself is a major feat of human engineering. And it's absolutely essential while that rocket sits there with the engines turned off. But as soon as those engines are lit, and the rocket begins to move under its own strength, the tower becomes utterly obsolete. John understood, I'm the tower. He must increase. I will decrease. My job is done. I'm the supporting role. So make Jesus the center. Recognize that the purpose of your life is to help others understand and experience how wonderful Jesus is. And those in your life who already know Jesus, that means that you're going to help them remember and experience His love by the way you serve them, by your encouragement to them, by the way you care for them and tend to them and show them love. And those in your life who don't know Jesus, your role is to show them and demonstrate what the love of Jesus is like. If someone in your life doesn't know Jesus, you are to that person, John the Baptist. You are like him in that you are to prepare the way for them to meet Jesus, and you're to do that by being a different kind of person than they're used to relating to. You're kind. You're compassionate. You're you're humble. You're able to give praise and accolades willingly and freely. It's not all about you. You're also just simply interested in them. And for some people, that's going to be the first time they encounter this divine love that is not of this world. They'll see it in you. And someday they'll meet Jesus or they'll hear about him, maybe through you or maybe through somebody else, but because of you, they'll be prepared to recognize the love of God when they see it. That's what John did for Israel. Look now at verse 29. The one who has the bride, he is the bridegroom. My role was to be the best man, the friend of the bridegroom who stands close by and, and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This joy of mine is now full, is now complete, my part is finished. In the ancient world where many marriages were arranged, it was often the part of the best man, the friend of the group, to be a part of those negotiations back and forth between the parties, helping get them ready. We might even imagine that in some instances, it wasn't the father of the bride, but actually the friend of the groom who was escorting the bride and bringing her to where the celebrations would happen and putting her hand in the hand of his best friend and saying, now they are together. Now my job is complete. So John is saying, I've awakened Israel's heart. I've revived the heart of Israel. They're longing for God once again. I've done that. Furthermore, I've brought Israel to meet her Messiah, her husband. I've said, he's here, and that's him. Now that bride and groom are together, I stand back, and my joy is full. And we think, wait, John, wasn't your joy when all of Jerusalem and Judea was flocking to you? Didn't that feel amazing? He says, no, that was not my joy. We would think that was his joy. The world would think that was your joy. His disciples thought, John, that was your joy. He says, no. My joy is to see the bride in the groom's arms, and I get to know that I was a part of that. My joy is complete. But there's something even deeper in this, if we have eyes to see. There's something even deeper going on here. Yes, John has joy at a job well done, His part, he received, he accepted it, he played it well, but even more. Look again at verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom stands close by and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John's greatest joy was that he got to meet Jesus, be in the company of the Messiah. His joy comes from the presence of the Lord. The very best cure for jealousy is worshiping Jesus, being in his presence. It eclipses all else. It's in that place of worship that we are reminded and that you know your purpose, your value, your very reason for being doesn't come from what you do or the recognition or any of that other stuff. But in that place, you know in the joy of his presence that the reason and the foundation of your existence is to know the joy of the Lord in his presence now in this life and forever. That's why you exist. John understood this, and he knew the freedom that comes when you make Jesus the center. So a couple years ago, Will is in my office and we're having a supervisory meeting and it becomes intimate. We're having a heart-to-heart. And I forget exactly what it was that prompted this, but he just confessed and he said, you know, Brett, I have to tell you, I've been struggling with feelings of jealousy for you. And I said, what's wrong with you? Go sin no more. (laughs) I said, you know, that's interesting, Will, because for a couple of years i've been struggling with jealousy over you and we confessed our sin but we also professed our love you're so great at this this is what you do well this is how i learned from you this is and in that moment of not only confessing our sins but also repenting and rebuking the spirit of envy i felt a lifting i felt free And I tell you the truth, from that point forward, I only celebrate and love it when Will is doing well. I can watch him do well. I can rejoice in his increasing ministry, and it doesn't hook me in the same way that it used to. I am free by confession and renouncing the spirit of envy. Again, the last words that we hear from the lips of John the Baptist in his entire ministry, his very last words, he must increase. I must decrease. And the goal of your life is that because of you, the knowledge and the experience of Jesus will increase in the lives of those around you. This is the season of Advent. We remember the birth of Jesus, but we're also reminded that he is coming again soon, and when he comes, he will judge the world, and each and every one of you, every deed, every thought will be laid bare before the great judge of all. But keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. Yes, that's a sobering reality. This is a hopeful truth. You will not be judged by the measurements of the world, the size of the house, your salary the number of people who thought well of you. You will be judged, that is measured, by your faithfulness. Did you accept your part? Did you seek to play it well? John of the cross said, we will be judged by how well we loved. And Here at Resurrection, you belong. You are needed. Every man, woman, every child, every young person, married, unmarried, young, and old, everyone who calls this church home, you have a part to play that God has given you for the building up of this church and for the reaching out in love to a lost and broken world that can't even imagine what we're talking about in this room right now. They can't even imagine it. You are called to be a part of that. You have a part to play to demonstrate in word and deed how wonderful, how good, how loving, how strong, how near and present is the Lord Jesus. That's your part, and it's a good part. And it will only ever be a supporting role, because Jesus alone is Messiah. Amen? Amen.